Well, this morning, we finally return back to the book of Matthew after taking a break for Advent, um, having a couple of guest pastors and then discussing communion for three weeks. And so I'm very excited to return to Matthew chapter 4, look at verses 1 through 11. Uh, this is a, I imagine, a familiar text for most of us. It's the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. And that can be found on page number 1,499 of the Pew Bibles. Again, that's Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Hear a few rustlings, okay. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and the angels came and attended him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, our passage this morning picks up immediately following Jesus' baptism which would have been probably one of the most special moments in Jesus' entire life. At the very least, at, at his baptism, he was assured by the Holy Spirit. He heard the very voice of God declaring that he is the Son of God and that God is well pleased with him. I think sometimes we can think to ourselves, well, this is all information that Jesus would have known. He would have been very well aware of. But we can't forget that Jesus had limited himself to a body at a certain place, at a certain time, with only certain knowledge. And that he'd been in that body for 30 years And so to all of a sudden, to be assured by God himself that everything that he was coming to believe about himself was in fact true, it would have been the ultimate mountaintop experience. It would have been the ultimate moment 
of affirmation and basking in the love of God than anyone could ever imagine. Do you remember the first time that you really understood that you are a beloved child of God? That he really has adopted you into his family? That all of your sins are forgiven and that nothing can separate you from the love of God? Do you remember that? When that really hits us, that we belong to God and that he loves us, I don't think there's anything more wonderful in this entire life. And for some of us, that knowledge dawns slowly over time. For others of us, it hits us all at once and we find ourselves overwhelmed with tears And then for many of us, God will come and he'll remind us of these truths just when we need to be reminded of them the most. And yet for others of us, we could maybe use a little encouragement right now that these things are true for us, for whatever reason. I don't know exactly where each and every one of you are this morning. I do know where some of you are and what you're going through. But I wonder if for some here this morning, today would be a really good day to have the Spirit come and overwhelm you with His love, to hear God's voice remind you that you're His child and that everything is going to be okay. And so if that's you this morning... Our passage, our passage lets us know that Jesus knows exactly how you feel. You see, right after this amazing experience of feeling the Spirit fall on him and hearing God's voice affirm his identity and God's love for him, we're told then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. You see, we know because of the character of God and because James chapter 1 tells us clearly that God tempts no one. God will never try to get us to do evil. But interestingly enough, he will lead us by his spirit so that the devil may try to get us to do evil. I don't know if you know this or not, but the word for tempt and the word for test in the New Testament are are the exact same word. And so we translate it tempt or test based on the um, intention of the person doing either the tempting or the testing. So God will let the devil tempt us to do evil, but God's purpose in allowing that temptation is to test us to reveal what's really inside of us. And so we're about to see what's really inside of Jesus. But Jesus' temptation, it doesn't come right away. We're told in verse 2, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. (laughs) This might actually be the most understated verse in the entire New Testament. 
Many people wonder if it's even possible to fast for 40 days. Uh, some have suggested that what's happening here is uh, that uh, God is somehow supernaturally assisting Jesus and being able to endure this feat of fasting. Others uh, have said that he's able to do it simply because he's God. But the point of this story is the fact that God was not miraculously assisting Jesus and that he was experiencing these extreme conditions as a human. And so I looked it up. Apparently, it is possible to fast for 40 days. Notice, Jesus wasn't thirsting for 40 days. That would be physically impossible. In fact, in order to fast for 40 days, uh, one must drink at least two liters of water every day. But a healthy human can fast for 40 days, especially one who's trained himself or herself uh, by shorter periods of fasting. But the most interesting thing that I discovered is there's something pretty magical about that 40-day mark. You know what happens at the 40-day mark of fasting? At the 40-day mark, your body has used up all of its fat resources. And so then the body begins to uh, ex- what it? Yeah, secrete an enzyme that starts to turn your muscle mass into food for your body. And when that happens, that means that you're starving. That's the definition of starvation. And so when I say that this this might be the most understated verse in the entire Bible, it's because after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus wasn't just hungry, he was literally starving. And so then I wondered to myself, well, what are the psychological effects of starvation? So I got on Google and I looked that up as well. Um, The psychological effects of starvation include, but are not limited to, depression, anxiety, irritability, increased mood fluctuations, intense and negative emotional reactions, decreased enthusiasm, reduced motivation, impaired concentration, problem solving and comprehension, increased rigidity, obsessional thinking, and reduced alertness. So that's where Jesus is here. This is the experience that the Holy Spirit has intentionally led him into. So as his body begins to eat itself, and he can't concentrate or solve problems, it's difficult to comprehend things, but he surely can obsess over things, which actually makes a lot of sense because It's easier to obsess when you can't reason and there's nothing to stop you. His body is literally stiffening up, his mind is not alert, and he's predisposed to feel bad and think negatively about everything. And in that exact moment, the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Now, Satan wasn't doubting whether or not Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus knows he's the Son of God. No, the devil's questioning whether or not the experience Jesus is currently having is one that the Son of God should have to experience. He's saying, you're the Son of God, Jesus. 
You don't have to be starving and delirious in the middle of the desert. Not only do you not deserve this, but you have the power to do something about it. Now, why would it be a sin for Jesus to turn some bread into, or some stones into bread? He turns water into wine and everybody celebrates that. Here's why. First, we never see Jesus use his divine power for personal gain. Ever. Jesus, during his sojourn on this planet, always lived as a dependent human. When he turns water into wine, he does that intentionally as a sign to point to the reality of his identity. And he also does it as a kindness to other dependent creatures. But he does not use his power to make himself independent of God. Second, it is clear in this story that God is the one who is in charge of deciding when this fast is over. Jesus will wait on God to decide when and how he will get his next meal. Now, there's no law that says that any one of us need to go 40 days without eating any food. And none of us would ever be tempted to turn stones into bread. And so this temptation is specific to Jesus. It's specific to this moment in time. And it's specific to instructions that God has only given to him. But given all those differences, we all understand this temptation, don't we? Because there are many different kinds of deserts in this life, and there are many different kinds of comforts that we are tempted to take on our own outside of God's will and outside of God's timing. We hear the devil mock us and say, you are his beloved child. He wouldn't want you to be lonely. He, wouldn't, he would want you to be happy. He wouldn't have given you the desire to love another person and to be loved by another person and then not let you fulfill that desire, would he? Of course not. So just give in. Go back to the website. Go back to the app. Call him. Call her. She wants to hear from you. Just go down to the bar. Grab a drink. Meet someone. Have some fun. Live a little. You deserve it. This is the lie every lonely teenage Christian hears every day. This is the lie every lonely aging Christian hears every day as the years tick by and the desire to be married remains. This is the lie every Christian who struggles with same-sex attraction hears every day. Because this is how temptation works. You don't deserve to feel this way and you can do something about it. But, Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So Jesus looks right at Satan, and he says to him, God's word is more true than what I think and what I feel in this very moment. God is good, 
His law is good. He can be trusted. His commandments are not burdensome. They are meant to give us life and to allow us to live properly as the kind of thing that we really are. Gas cars run on gas. Diesel trucks run on diesel. Electric cars run on electricity. And human beings run on the very words of God. Even when we are starving and delirious in the desert and nothing makes sense, if God has spoken, we can know it's true. And what makes what Jesus does here even more beautiful is because when Adam was in the garden, surrounded by every good tree to to eat, and all he had to do was resist eating this one delicious fruit that he was asked not to eat, and he couldn't do it. And yet here Jesus is, starving and delirious in the desert, surrounded by rocks, and he would rather trust God. When the people of Israel were in the wilderness and were constantly complaining and dreaming about going back to Egypt, in spite of all the ways that God had miraculously provided food for them, yet here Jesus is, his body literally eating itself, and he still believes God is good and trusts him. Friends, I don't know what wilderness God has called you into. I don't know what legitimate comfort he is keeping you from in this moment whether it's your health, whether it's a relationship. I don't know. But I know that those things are only right and only good when they come from God in His will and His time. True life is only found in God's Word. The temptation of Jesus goes on, verse 5 and 7. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. So if the first temptation was the temptation to find comfort apart from God's will and apart from God's timing, then this is the temptation to be assured that God will keep us safe and secure. In this temptation, the devil actually quotes Psalm 91, which is a psalm that describes the kind of protection that a believer has by trusting in God. Psalm 91 tells us that God is our fortress and that he is our refuge and that he will save us from traps and disease. Psalm 91 tells us that we don't have to fear terrors or arrows or pestilence or plague. In verse 7 of Psalm 91, we're told that a thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. Later in Psalm 91, it says, If you say the Lord is my refuge and you make the Most High your dwelling, no harm will overtake you. No disaster will come near your tent. 
These are quite some promises, aren't they? Later, the psalmist will also talk about how we can even trample on lions and snakes. No harm, no disaster, no fear, no terror, no plague, no pestilence, all while safely trampling on lions and snakes. All promises that belong to us if God is our refuge. And so Satan takes Jesus to the highest point of the temple, which would have been a flat corner on the back side of the temple, overlooking hundreds of feet down into a ravine. And so there he is, stiff and starving, delirious, can barely concentrate, and all of a sudden he finds himself standing on top of the temple. Now, you and I have stood near the edge of a cliff before, and we know that disorienting feeling of how close can I really get or do I even want to get? And all of a sudden, Jesus is thrust into that moment, except he's dizzy with hunger. And then to hear the promises of Scripture in that moment, telling him that everything is going to be okay, just let yourself go. God promises to send his angels to come and scoop you up. These promises must have felt like a gravitational pull for someone as physically exhausted as Jesus, standing on a building, unable to properly reason, probably wanting to give up. And so what are we to make of this? Well, here it is. That God will care for our safety and security is 100% true. 100% million percent true. God is that good and God is in that much control of all things. And Psalm 91, taken by itself, is meant to assure us that God will care for us. But the psalmist is clearly using exaggeration. The psalmist is making claims that are not meant to be taken literally. It's a poetic device to cut deeply into our soul and let us know that God's love and protection over us is actually, in a total and eternal sense, this real, this true, this complete, even when it doesn't seem like it. That's what Psalm 91 is for. It's a psalm for those who are in the middle of the worst trial. It's a psalm for those who are afraid, who do hear the arrows whizzing past their head. It's a psalm for those who have the plague, and are suffering pestilence and disease. It's a psalm calling them to believe that God is their refuge, that he will protect them, that they can rest safe and secure in him by faith, trusting the words of Romans 8, 28, which say, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. All things, even this trial, even this trial. But in Psalm 91, God is not asking us to forget everything that we know about reality and to test him by taking the psalm literally. Which is why Jesus tells the devil, we are not to put the Lord our God to the test. We are not to presume that God will spare us in any specific way. Yet what's interesting about Jesus' response is that it comes from Deuteronomy 6.16, where Moses is reminding the Israelites about their failure to trust that God would care for their safety and their security. 
They tested God not by presuming that he would protect them, but by refusing to believe that he would care for their basic needs. In the incidents Moses is referring to in Deuteronomy 6, God had just rescued Israel out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. He had just rescued them from the Egyptians by parting the waters of the Red Sea. And then the next moment, the Israelites realized, oh no, we've got no water, we're thirsty, well, Moses has got to die. As if somehow God led them out there into the wilderness just to let them die of thirst. So there are two ways we put God to the test in terms of his care for us and our safety and security. First, anytime we presume that he will care for us in a specific way, By taking promises like what we find in Psalm 91, literally. An example of this would be when somebody says, I know God is going to cure me from this. I know it. How do you know that? Well, he he promises me that he's going to cure my diseases and he's going to keep me from the plague. Oh, man. Or when somebody says, I'll only believe he cares for me if he cures me from this. And then the other way we put him to the test is if we, like the Israelites in the wilderness, let our circumstances lead us to doubt that he does care for us. And so as Christians, we can know that God loves us and cares for our safety and our security even as our life is slipping from our body. Did you know that? This is the paradox of the Christian life. We are invincible until he calls us into suffering or until he calls us home to glory. And yet we are still invincible even as we are suffering and even as we are leaving this earth into glory. And Jesus doesn't need God to prove that that's true. So how can we know that God will care for our safety and our security then, Pastor Patrick? Well, simply because he says that he will in his word. Well, what does it look like to to know that he's going to care for my safety and my security? Well, it looks like exactly what you're going through, whether in sickness or in health. You see, have you ever played that game where your uh, teammates or your classmates or your office staff stood in a line facing each other and they, and they held arms and then you or one of your other teammates climbed up on top of a desk or something and then, and then fell backwards into their arms. Has anybody ever played that? In that moment, as we're falling backwards, we, we let go of control and we entrust ourselves completely to our teammates. And one day, every single one of us is going to fall backwards into the abyss of death. Just like that. And for a moment, there will be no sense that we are safe or secure. Which is why this is a truth we must take into our hearts right now. Because we will all have this experience at some point. And the more we rest in God's word, that he is the one caring for our safety and security, 
regardless of our experience or our circumstances, the more peace we will have in that moment. The temptation of Jesus goes on, verses 8 through 10. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Okay, so if the first temptation is about comfort, the second is about safety and security, this one is about significance and power. What do you want and who are you going to worship? Uh, The first two, a little more subtle, right? Satan tries to take advantage of Jesus and his weakness and his humanity, but in this one, he pulls back the curtain and he tries to offer him the kingdom without the cross. When I was a kid, if you'd have asked me, like I'm talking six or seven years old, what do you want to be when you grow up? I would have said, I want to be a rock star or a famous musician. That's what I would have said. And I'm sure there was a little bit of pride in there, but there was also some childhood innocence. Because I think even back then I had a sense that I was made for something more than I was actually experiencing in this life. And I didn't have categories for what that must be like. But the Bible gives us categories, right? We're told that God puts eternity into our hearts. Adam and Eve, when they were created, they were created to rule and to reign over this creation. And you and I are promised that we will one day rule and reign with God as well. God promises that he will glorify us and that we were made for glory. Romans 8.17 says that we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ in order that we may also share in his glory. See, to be an heir of someone is to be somebody who receives a benefit simply because of our relationship with our benefactor. And so we get to share in Christ's glory simply because we've been adopted into God's family by faith And what Christ has done for us, we were made for it, we know it in the depths of our hearts, we feel it in our bones, but there's only one way to get it. And if you notice, I put a little ellipsis in the middle of this verse, so let's add those words back in. Go ahead and go to the next slide. We're told that we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. You see, there are... No shortcuts to glory for sinners. Sinners must die. And Satan wasn't offering Jesus anything he didn't already have. Sure, Satan is the God of this world, but Jesus was already the King of kings and the Lord of lords, right? This was really just another trick. Because the only way Jesus could save sinners like you and I was to go to the cross. The only way Jesus could do what he came to this world to do was to jump into the abyss of the cross, to entrust himself to God, to refuse to call those angels down to come and rescue him, and to suffer and die in our place as a condemned criminal without comfort, with all visible safety and security removed, and with no glory, no significance, and no power. He died the death of a criminal on a cross, naked, alone, and from the world's perspective, totally ashamed. And we are called to take up our cross and follow him. To believe that our comfort, our security, and our significance are bound up in him. 
and received by faith in his word, apart from our circumstances, apart from our feelings, and apart from what even seems right to us. Ultimately, Jesus will fight every one of these temptations again, from his tears and prayers in the Garden of Gethsemane to his cry on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And at the cross, there will be no comfort, no security, no significance. He's an ordinary, anonymous criminal, dying a shameful death, hearing the screams and the taunts of the devil until his ears close in death. But in the desert, here in the beginning of his ministry, the temptation finally comes to an end, we're told. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended to him. I think of Elijah in the desert, and the angels bringing him food, and imagine Jesus received food here. He was comforted, and he was protected. He was reminded of his significance as the King of kings, and the Lord of lords, and the Son of God. So what do we take from this? Well, this is a master class on how to fight temptation. It requires faith. We must believe that God is good and that his word is more true than what we think and what we feel. The more we know God's word, the more we can recognize all the ways that Satan twists it and the more we can use it to remind ourselves what is true in the midst of the battle. I remember... Early in my Christian walk, I had an experience where I was profoundly tempted by Satan. And I knew, I knew it wasn't the world, it wasn't my flesh, there, were, there was something demonic about what was happening in that moment. And I only had like one or two verses of scripture memorized. I felt out to battle without a weapon, literally. We also learn that there really is no temptation that is not common to man. Even the spectacular temptations that are specific to Jesus, we can resonate with, right? Because we're all tempted to seek comfort and security and significance outside of God's will and outside of God's timing. But God is faithful, and he will provide the way of escape so that we can endure the temptation. The devil will eventually flee from us if we resist him. And we can experience the ministering of angels. But this passage is not actually primarily about how we can fight temptation, although that is definitely part of it. This passage is primarily about the fact that our Savior defeated temptation. Because in order for us to fight temptation, we have to have faith We have to believe that God is good and that God is for us and nothing says God is good and he is for us like seeing what Jesus suffered to save us from our sins. Chapter two, the book of Hebrews said that um, because Jesus suffered while being tempted, he's also able to help us when we're being tempted. Let me try that again. For because he himself suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. See, we think of Jesus as suffering so much at the end of his life, with his death on the cross, but his whole life was a life of suffering. 
And nothing strengthens our faith and motivates us to trust God in the midst of temptation like seeing what it cost Jesus to live the perfect life that we never could. Our stories are filled with one failure after another, but every victory, every growth and godliness in our lives, every successful battle with temptation is fueled by the love of God on display for sinners in passages like this. And now when God sees us, when God looks on you, and he looks on our record and our battles against the world, the flesh, and the devil, he sees us as if our victory was as complete and hard fought as Jesus's victory here. Did you know that? The hard-earned righteousness on display in this passage is the righteousness that Christ offers to each one of us, and all we do is simply receive it as a gift and put it on like a coat. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning, and we can only begin to imagine what Jesus endured for us in this moment. We can only even barely fathom the depths of temptation that he suffered here, and he was victorious. And in his victory, Father, in his victory, he became the perfect Savior. He earned a perfect righteousness that he can give to us, that when you look at us now, you see this kind of righteousness. And then we see everything that he's done for us to save us, Father. We are moved in our hearts to trust him, to believe that his words are true, So that when we face temptation, we can cling not only to his righteousness, but what he has done for us. So we know that his love for us is total and complete. So we thank you for the story, God. We thank you for the encouragement that it is for weary sinners like us. In Jesus' name, amen.